We shouldn't talk about this may contain graphic descriptions and or explicit content that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Hi everybody, I'm Key. And I'm V. And this is We Shouldn't Talk About This. Well, hello Key. Hi V, how are you this lovely, lovely afternoon? I am doing right well. What about yourself? I am as well. I'm doing good. The sun is out. It's nice. I had a awesome, awesome breakfast this morning. Now I'm I'm ready to go. What was for breakfast? Um, cinnamon toast crunch, the name brand, not the bootleg, with oh, oh, my <laughs> with my Chobani. Extra creamy, unsweetened oat milk. It was delicious. And a cup of hot tea with honey and my extra creamy, unsweetened oat milk. It was awesome. Well, that all does sound really good. I had to do breakfast on the run, so I had a brown sugar and cinnamon Pop-Tart. But I couldn't warm it up or get any milk because I had to leave so soon. Well... That sounds terrible. Yeah, it was like the part time was still good, but you know, it could have been much, much better. Yeah, yeah. Warm Pop Tarts are much better than cold ones. Yeah, just like out the wrapper raw Pop Tart. Well, I guess it depends on the flavor. The brown sugar and cinnamon ones definitely taste better warm. Yeah, yeah. It, it seems like it would. Because it's like a Cinnabon. Like, yeah. You know, on a cold cinnabon maybe you do that's your that's your prerogative i'm not saying there's anything wrong with it like tabitha brown says and that's your business that's your business (laughs) so v what this is episode 20 this episode 20 already already should we skip a number we have not skipped any numbers We have put out 19 greatly produced and edited and researched episodes, and this is number 20. Wow. I guess we got to keep this train moving, then. Keep this momentum going. Man, this is exciting. This is so exciting. So for for 20, what are we going to talk about? Let's talk about stalkers stalkers like 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 real stalkers yes have you ever had a stalker not a stalker just someone that was really really clingy and um i was like i guess i was like the first person to ever be nice to them and they kind of took it as like they gotta know where i am at all times and we have to be like attached to the at the hip it was pretty odd but it it blew over real fast though, so that's good. Have you ever had a stalker? No, no, I'm not nice to anyone, so you know. To to anyone? No, no wow. one. That's jacked up. It is, but hey, that's life. That's life, and fortunately for you, not being nice to anyone paid off because you didn't have to deal with something similar to the cases we're going to speak about today. Yeah, but you know, a lot of stalking cases are 
people who've never even met the object of the stalking. Really? Yes, like that's my case. They they had never even met. And you know, a lot of um celebrities get stalkers like people who have never even actually met them just become their stalkers because they're so enamored with the person they see on TV or you know, in magazines. That is so unfortunate. Yes, it is. So, you know, I guess it doesn't matter whether you're nice or mean or somewhere in between. You could get a stalker. Yeah, I guess no one's safe now. Here I am no thinking that safe. that the mean people weren't weren't subjected to it, but no, think think again. Right. That's why I said that's life. Hey, I could be as mean as I want to be and still possibly get a stalker. Well, hopefully our listeners are awesome people and are not crazy at all and want to track us down and see every little detail about us and everything. But hey, if you love us that much, then that's awesome. Just do it the safe way. I mean, if there's anyone in Australia that wants to marry me and move me to Australia, I am totally up for that. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yes. You can stalk me from Australia. Actually, this is an invitation. You don't have to stalk. Just email at we shouldn't talk about this at gmail.com and be like, Key, I love you. I live in Australia. Here's a plane ticket. Come on. Boom. I'm there. Oh, man. Just think about how difficult it would be to do remote shows with the time difference, right? Right. <laughs> well, that's life. That's life. <laughs> <laughs> we had to do one. You had to do like one day where it's the middle of the night for you and one day it's the middle of the night for me just to make it fair and i'm okay with that i'm okay with that (laughs) well okay would you like to begin sure i guess we will get into our stories so gather around children it's time for a tale of crime now my story is about rebecca schaefer Rebecca Lucille Schaefer was born in Eugene, Oregon on November 6, 1967. She was the only child of Dana, a writer and instructor at Portland Community College, and Dr. Benson Schaefer, a child psychologist. Being raised in the Jewish religion, she had initially she initially had aspirations to become a rabbi, but she began modeling during her junior year in high school. Those are two vastly different careers. Yeah, absolutely. A rabbi and a model. Man. She appeared in department store catalogs and television commercials, and also as an extra in TV shows and films. In 1984, her parents allowed her to move to New York City by herself to pursue a modeling career. So she wasn't even 20. She was like um, 17 or right around, like right before her 18th birthday. Man, that's crazy. No, 18 right around her 19th birthday. Okay, okay. Still, though, that's really cool. Yeah. While working in New York, she attended professional children's school. She also had a short-term role on the daytime soap opera Guiding Light. 
which I vaguely re- well, I remember the TV show Guiding Light, not Rebecca, because I'm not that old. So okay. later in 1984, Schaefer landed the role of Annie Barnes on ABC's One Life to Live for a stint that lasted six months. I remember that too. Like these um, soap operas go on for like decades and decades and decades. Wow. Yeah, it's, like, it'd be tiring to write that much story. I don't see how they do it. Like, I've never been into soap operas like that, but I don't see how they last so long. Like, the characters die, and they come back, and, oh, no, this is my evil twin, and it's always a mess. Always. It sounds like anime, but much, much longer. <laughs> now, during this time, she attempted to further in her modeling prospects. At five foot seven, she was considered too short for high fashion modeling and struggled to find work. In 1985, she moved to Japan in hopes of finding more modeling jobs, but still encountered difficulty due to her height and weight. She returned to New York City and decided to focus on her acting career. Now, she was not, like, overweight. So I I don't know if just, like, in comparison to the Asian models, she was, like, too big for the clothes. Because, like, in her pictures, she is, like, an average size. She is not, like, super, super skinny. She's very, you know, she's a pretty girl. But I don't get why it was so hard for her to become a model. Yeah, yeah. Now, in 1986, Schaefer won the role, won a small role in Woody Allen's comedy Radio Days, But her full performance was ultimately edited from the film and only a brief scene featuring her character remains. She continued modeling and also worked as a waitress. She appeared on the cover of Seventeen magazine, which caught the attention of television producers who were casting for a comedy, My Sister Sam, starring Pam Dauber. Schaefer got the role of Patricia Patty Russell, a teenager who moves from Oregon to San Francisco to live with her 29-year-old sister, Samantha, or Sam, after the death of their parents. The series was an initial hit, ranking in the top 25, but it was canceled halfway through its second season in April 1988 due to failing ratings. After my sister, Sam, Schaefer had supporting roles in scenes from the class struggle in Beverly Hills, The End of Innocence, and the TV film Out of Time. She also served as a spokesman for children's charity Thursday's Child. Unbeknownst to Rebecca, her rising star was garnering the attention of a psychopath. John Robert Bardo was a fan who had been stalking her for three years. Mm-hmm. He had previously been obsessed with child peace activist Samantha Smith, who had been killed in a plane crash in 1985. He wrote numerous letters to Schaefer, one of which she did answer. In 1987, he traveled to Los Angeles, hoping to meet with Schaefer on the set of My Sister Sam, but Warner Brothers security turned him away. He returned a month later with a knife, but security guards again prevented him from gaining access. Wait, wait. So they're like, buddy, you have a knife. Just walk away. Just get out of here. They didn't, like, tackle him or, like, call the cops on him? No. 
Huh. They told him you can't come into the onto the sets, and he left. Huh. Now he returned to Tucson and lost focus on Schaefer for a while as his obsession shifted toward pop singers Debbie Gibson, Madonna, and Tiffany Darwish. However, Bardo watched Schaefer in the comedy scenes from The Class Struggle in Beverly Hills in 1989, in which she appeared in bed with another actor. He became enraged by the scene, apparently out of jealousy, and decided that Schaefer should be punished for becoming, quote, another Hollywood whore. Wow. After taking notes from Arthur Richard Jackson, who had stalked and stabbed actress Teresa Saldana in 1982, Bardo learned that Jackson had used a private investigator to obtain Saldana's address. Bardo then paid a detective agency in Tucson $250 to find Schaefer's home address in California um, through the California Department of Motor Vehicle Records. The private investigating firm got the address from someone who checked the DMV public records. Bardo allegedly told the firm that Schaefer was an old friend and he wanted to send her a gift. Bardo's brother helped him get a Ruger GP100 357 handgun because Bardo was only 19 years old and had mental health issues. Now, I'm not one to judge, but if my 19-year-old brother with mental health issues said, hey, I need a gun, I think I'm going to be like, mm, no, 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 no. That's the last thing you need, brother. Right. Like, I'm all for the right to bear arms, but you don't need this. And do you know how big bear arms are? They're huge and hairy. Go to sleep, B. Bardo <laughs> traveled to Los Angeles for a third time and roamed the neighborhood where Schaefer lived, asking people if she actually lived there. Once he was certain that the address was correct, he rang the doorbell. The 21-year-old actress heard the bell or knock at the door of her West Hollywood home on July 18th, 1989. Schaefer was preparing for an audition for The Godfather Part 3 and was expecting a script to be delivered, so she answered the door. However, instead of a courier, it was 19-year-old Bardo. He showed her a letter and autograph that she had previously sent him. He also reportedly had a copy of Catcher in the Rye, which is the same book that Mark David Chapman was carrying when he murdered John Lennon in 1980. Wow. So he has this thing with like um, imitating other celebrity stalkers. Yeah. So, after a short conversation, Schaefer reportedly told him, please take care, and she asked him not to come to her home again. He went to a diner nearby and had breakfast and then returned to her apartment an hour later. She answered the door with, quote, a cold look on her face, Bardo later said. He pulled the gun from a brown paper bag and shot her in the chest at point-blank range in the doorway of her apartment building. Schaefer screamed and collapsed in her doorway. 
she was just screaming, he told psychiatrist Dr. Park Dietz. She was going, why, why? I was still fumbling around, thinking I should blow my head off and fall on her. But Bardo fled instead. A neighbor called an ambulance, and she was taken to Cedar sinai Medical Center, where she was pronounced dead 30 minutes after her arrival. That is so terrible. Oh my. It's, it's extremely sad. Now, the Tucson police chief, Peter Ronstadt, arrested Bardo the next day after motorists reported a man running through traffic on Interstate 10 yelling, I killed Rebecca Schaefer. He immediately confessed to the murder upon being arrested. Marsha Clark, better known for her role as lead prosecutor in the O.J. Simpson murder case, prosecuted the case against him. Bardo was convicted of capital murder in a bench trial and was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Now, he he did what I would have, well, let me preface this. If I'm being prosecuted for something I know I didn't do, I would take a bench trial. I mean, he was okay, running okay. around the internet, I mean, not the internet, the interstate <laughs> screaming that I murdered Rebecca Schaefer, so, yeah. I mean, yeah. he definitely was not innocent. But, I'm telling you, I feel like I've said this before, always take a bench trial if you didn't do it. Because a bench trial is just a judge. Who's going to know the law better? A judge or 12 civilians who don't know you, don't know legalese, don't know the terminology. 12 people can't even agree what to put on a pizza. Right, right. You really want them to agree on what's going to happen with your life? No. Very true, very true. So, Rebecca Schaefer's death also helped prompt the passage or the 1990 passage of America's first anti-stalking laws, which makes it a felony to cause another or their family to be in reasonable fear for their safety and carries a state prison sentence. As of 2019, this law is recognized in all 50 states. Just so, in 2019. Yes. What now, can... to think that it took a celebrity death in 1990, which was only 30 years ago, to make a anti-stalking law. Man. Is ridiculous in itself. It is. It really is. Now, also as a result of Rebecca's death, California law regarding the release of personal information through the DMV was changed, thank goodness. But again, only 30 years ago. Governor George Duckman said effective October 1st, 1989, all commercial organizations requesting personal information from the DMV will be required to register with the department and adhere to detailed new agreements on how the data will be used. In addition, the governor said the DMV will establish a 10-day waiting period before issuing a person's home address to individuals requesting information. During this waiting period, the department will notify the person that a request has been made for his or her information. The person will receive 
the name of the company or individual who made the request and the reason for it. Now, the information will still be delivered, said Kevin Brett, the governor's press secretary, but there will be a warning issue to the individual. Now, while vast majority of DMV personal information requests are for legitimate lawful purposes, Duke Mayen said, there is a growing concern that this information is also easily available to those who have violent or illegal intentions, such as the suspect in the Rebecca Schaefer case. In addition to issuing his directive, Duke Mayen indicated that he is also willing to work with the legislature to develop a plan to make it even harder to obtain private home addresses or other personal information from the DMV. Our goal should be to limit access to this information to requesters who have legitimate business purposes, he said. By taking these steps, we can provide an additional measure of protection for our citizens while at the same time keeping information available to those entities which truly have a compelling need for the information. The Drivers Pri Privacy Protection Act, which prevents the DMV from releasing private, private addresses, was enacted in 1994, 26 years ago. I don't understand, like, that's just so crazy. Like he can get any he could have got anyone's address up until nineteen ninety-four. Yes, you could just go to a private investigator, pay them and say, Hey, give me this person's address, and they would just access the DMV records and get it. Well, so so casual about it. <laughs> right. It and it's like, how did nobody think that was dangerous? Like what? Say you got a a restraining order on somebody, and so you move, and they pay someone to to access the DMV information and find you. And they tell the investigator, "Oh yeah, like we're coworkers, but I got to deliver something." You know, they'll say anything, and the the investigator will be like, "Yeah, okay, makes sense." Right. Now, at the time of her death, Schaefer was dating director Brad Siberling. Her death influenced his film Moonlight Mile in 2002 about a man's grief after his fiance is murdered. Shortly after Schaefer's death, Pam Dauber and her other My Sister Sam co-stars Joel Brooks, David Naughton, and Jenny O'Hara filmed a public service announcement for the Center to Prevent Handgun Violence in her honor. Bardo continues to serve his life sentence in Avenal State Prison in Central California. Now, in 2007, he suffered some serious injuries when a fellow inmate stabbed him 11 times when he was at Mule Creek State Prison. Yikes. He survived, though. 11 times? Yeah. Hmm. And on October 12, 2019, the TV show 2020 released a new two-hour documentary called Your Biggest Fan, which was about Schaefer just months before the 30th anniversary of her untimely death. That's so terrible. That is, like, he had never met her a day in his life, 
and got mad that she was in a comedy sketch in the bed with somebody and killed her over it. That just blows my mind. Ugh. And it's sad, like, she was just 21. She was on the the up-and-coming celebrityism. She was going to audition for Godfather 3. Had she been a part of the Godfather movies? Yeah, like, she, would. she probably would have took off. Exactly. Man. And he just senselessly cut her life short for no reason. I mean, the only good thing that came out of this were the anti-stalking laws and yeah. the DMV laws. Yeah, which should have not have took this long. It should have been late 20th century for this stuff to have been put in place. It should have been as soon as the DMV was invented. They were like, no, we cannot give out personal information. Yeah. Mm. It's weird, but... It's weird. That's the story of Rebecca Schaefer, a star on the rise, who was unfortunately gunned down in her own apartment building by a deranged fan. Man, that's such terrible, such a terrible fate. That's really it. like, um, like, so, so stalkers who murder, they commit crimes of passion basically, right? I don't think so. Cause he was convicted of like first degree murder, not crime of passion. So like, uh, so crime and passion isn't like exactly what it's what it says. Like, like it's not like you know you you kill someone because you love them or like you think you love them. Like that's not what a crime and passion no. is. No, a crime of passion is something that you didn't plan. It just kind of happened in the heat of the moment. Like, huh. if we're arguing and I just start strangling you, and then I accidentally like kill you that's a crime of passion. Like I didn't plan to kill you that day, okay. but it just escalated so far. That it happened. Oh well, I was taking the um, I was taking the term like literally, but oh. okay then. Learn something new today, everyone. Thank Yay. you for being a part of this. <laughs> hmm. Well, um, my story also takes place in California, and it is the story of Tatiana Tarasov. That's so, an interesting name. I like the yeah. name Tatiana, first of all. Yes, yeah, she's she's uh, she she's Russian. Oh. So uh, Tatiana Tarasov goes by Tanya. Was born January twenty second, nineteen forty nine. She was an uh, she was the daughter of Russian immigrants, born in China, moved first to Brazil, and then to the U S. And she was in the United States since she um, turned fourteen. Her parents were very protective. Um, she couldn't wear makeup. She she was com- always trying to combat the rules of the house, and sometimes she just lied to get in order with to, just to get what she wanted, or waiting until she was out the house to like apply her mascara and other makeup and stuff. Like a normal teenager. Yeah, yeah. She was in college at Merritt College in Oakland, but she also um, was a tutor. Yeah, the at Berkeley's International House, teaching the Portuguese speaking the Portuguese speaking students in her free time. And so one night there was a dance, and I think it was New Year's Eve. And her parents allowed her to go to the folk dance, 
um, be as long as her brother could take her and take her there and drop her back, she was able to go as long as Alex was able to her brother. Okay, I mean that that seems fair. Like you know, your uh older sibling has to kind of watch you, like not you know watch you, watch you, but at least be aware of where you are. So yeah, that that sounds okay, agreeable. Yeah, so so Tanya was having having a great time at the at the dance and this was at the University of California's Ber- um, Berkeley International House and a young Indian man caught her caught her eye or he he she caught his eye and he was just watching her as she danced and danced and danced the student who had been staring at her was 22-year-old Prasenjit Podar a graduate student in naval architecture who lived in the international house and worked as an inspector on marine structures, built miniature marine ships in his spare time. And, you know, he was pretty much, uh, he, he was an, also an immigrant from India. Um, and he was just like, you know, just a student there, but he decided to go to the dance because a couple of, a couple of his friends asked him if he wanted to go too. Okay. No, I can dig it. So, um, Prasenjit, when he actually starts speaking to Tanya, he, he appeared as kind, but sort of intense, but it was, but he was definitely unlike any other University of California student at the time. He was, he was born in India as a member of the Dalit or untouchable class, a group so low that they are considered beneath the forecast that make up the Hindu system. Prasenjit had fought incredible odds to leave home, let alone to end up in graduate program at Berkeley. Only a handful of untouchables in, in all of India ever leave to an American university. So, so Prasenjit was, was, you know, he, he was a gifted student. First of all, for them to call them untouchables is highly, highly disrespectful. Yeah, it is. But um, that's the. I mean, I the understand soil. the cultural differences. Yeah. But man, how dare you? Not you. 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 Call someone an untouchable. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty, pretty crappy. But also, Persinget struggled with the incredible culture shock of landing in the Bay Area during the Summer of Love in 1969, 1968, 19, 1967 to 1969, I suppose. Everywhere around him, young people were throwing off cultural expectations in the favor of radical experimentation with music, fashion, sex, and drugs. Persinget was in a sh- kind of shock observing his new surroundings occasionally withdrawing to his room for days to work on his own projects, turning, tuning out the chaos of student life outside his door. Though, though he had been entranced by Tanya dancing the first time he laid eyes on her, Persingent didn't work up the nerve to talk to her until a following, um, a following uh, folk dance that went on. Tanya Increasingly interested in, in romantic love, was curious about Persingent, though she was breezy and noncommittal in her early dealings with him. All right, play, I see you, Tatiana. <laughs> uh, the two began to see each other here and there, 
going out for pizza into the movies. But for Sinjit, who came from a family where casual sex was unheard of and arranged marriages was a norm, had never dated or really interacted with women. In part because of his inexperience, in part because of what would prove to be his profound mental instability, he misread almost all of si- all the signs Tani was sending. Within, mm. Yeah, within weeks of meeting Tanya, he'd written to his parents back in their Bengal village, telling them details about the Tarasov family, and especially about the accordion-playing young Tanya, who had won a seat to the university. Hold on, she played the accordion too? See, I like this girl. I like her. Yeah, yeah, yeah she, was, she was a cool, charismatic girl. She, she had, she was teaching languages and stuff, and she was worldly, living in all types of places, and yeah. playing the accordion, and pimping on dudes in college. See, <laughs> I like her. I like her. And um, and he even wrote that the family looks to looks to me to express my intentions. And he wrote all this to his parents back in the village, right? Okay. But he, but he never, never met Tanya's family. They didn't even know he existed. Wow. As Tanya's interest for Persingent faded, his affection for her only ramped up. He couldn't believe that the girl who had once seemed to like him now wouldn't commit to hanging out. He continued He continued to try to change her mind, showing up at her house, standing with her at the bus stop, and calling insistently. Persingent felt toyed with by Tanya. In the following months, he sank into a deep depression, often skipping work and school to learn about her whereabouts and follow her. Whoa, whoa, sir. Sir. Des- desperate, he befriended Alex, Tanya's brother, who became his roommate. Oh my gosh, this is like craze level stalking right here. Yeah. Um, according to some accounts, Persingent had pictures all over his wall of Tanya, and he audiotaped their conversations, playing them back in a way that made her say things he wanted to hear. Wow. It's like a whole psychotic break happening. Yeah, and uh, and a couple times, Persingent angrily told coworkers that he would like to blow up Tanya's house. Oh my gosh. He felt toyed with her. He felt he felt like if you know she if she doesn't love me anymore, then there's something wrong with her. But fortunately, Tanya began to spend time with Persingen again, but by all accounts, did not think of him as a boyfriend. Rather, she just liked the attention that he gave her. She was freaked out occasionally as when he showed her a detailed journal in which he recorded details of their every interactions with headings like taking my girlfriend to the king of hearts. But she had little sense that he was truly dangerous. She would just tell him that he was crazy and urgent to relax. Mm, mm. I can tell this isn't going to go good. This is where things get really crazy right here. Uh, once you, once oh, you this make is sure where things are down. getting really crazy? Yeah. This is where it's at? Oh, gosh. Okay. Oh, yeah. So, eventually, at the encouragement of a friend, Persingent sought help at the campus mental health clinic, where he was treated by Dr. Larry Moore, 
then a rising star in psychiatry. Dr. Moore was instantly concerned by the way Presidente talked about Tanya and wondered a number of times whether he ought to breach the doctor-patient conf confidentiality and tell someone about the increasingly dangerous threats Presidente made in his office. He said, Yes, yes, you should. He said, I would like to buy a gun and I would like to I would like to murder Tanya. But but Dr. Moore thought the best predicator of future violence was a history of past violence, and Presidente didn't have any past violence. So he simply asked Presidente for his word that he would cease all communication with the girl. What do you think Presidente said? I think he flat out lied and said, yeah, sure, Doc, I will. He indeed said that, and he also stopped going to therapy. So a couple of months later, on October 27th, 1969, Presidente showed up at Tanya's house. She came to the door, and she asked him to leave. He said, I need to speak with you. She screamed when Presidente pulled out a pellet gun. Which oh he promptly God. up, which he promptly unloaded into her chest. Damn. He he walked back into the family's front yawn. Tanya screaming, lunged toward him, and he pulled out a 13-inch butcher knife and stabbed her eight times to quiet her, as he would later tell the police. Oh my God. He walked into the house, called the police, and said, "I just stabbed my girlfriend." When police arrived, he called me, said, handcuff me. I killed her. Oh, my gosh. This is, he, like, really went off the deep end. Yeah. It was, it was awful. This, it's crazy just to think that it started at, like, one of the, one of the school dances, and he just thought she was beautiful, and then built up the courage to speak to her, and, just from his culture, he's it was just unheard of for him, like you know, for him to like just uh, go on dates and stuff like that. So like her, get, her, her reciprocating the attention to him and like you know being one on one with him, he was like, okay, this is my woman. But just being so unstable mentally, it's just not good. Oh, that's terrible. This is sad. Yeah, it, this this kind of gets sad. This kind of gets sadder now a little bit. So, hopefully you're ready for this. I don't think I have a choice. <laughs> Tanya was pronounced dead on arrival at the hospital. Presidente was found guilty of secondary murder and sentenced to five years in prison. But following an appeal, a new judge agreed to release Presidente on the condition that he be deported back to India. He returned to Kolta, married, and had a child. Yeah, so his her family didn't get justice for this at all. None at all. He just got sent back to his home country and was able to marry and have a, have children, live a normal life again. That's fucked up. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, of course, Mr. and Mrs. Tarasov were still furious that the university mental health professor professionals, especially Dr. Moore, had known about Presidente's plans and had told campus police, but not the family. So they brought a wrongful death suit against the 
regents of the University of California. The case ultimately went to the California Supreme Court, which ruled in 1976 that is, that is it is a therapist's moral and professional obligation to report threats like persingents in order to protect threatened individuals. Some members of the medical establishment argued that the decision would chip away the, the entire practice of psychotherapy, of which confidentiality is thought to be the cornerstone. But the majority decision was clear and has saved lives in the 40 or so states in which it is codified, codified in law or upheld through president. 40 or so states? Not even the whole U.S.? Nope. Wow. Our, the United States of America is very strange and the laws that the states can agree to follow and not. Right, because like, this right here, like, if I don't think that it was real, is really like, okay, so say you go to a therapist and they ask you, are you thinking of killing yourself? They immediately have to report that if you say, yes, I'm suicidal. Why is that any different than saying, I want to kill someone else? No, I don't want to kill myself, but I want to kill Henry. Like, right. Yeah. If you're going to harm anybody, yourself included, your psychiatrist should have not just a moral obligation, but a legal obligation to report you. That's just the way I feel about it. Yeah, I feel like it's, feel like it's pretty backwards and um, unsafe. Yeah, then especially like not all states adhere to that law. Oh, my gosh. Okay, go ahead. Well, that is actually the end of it. Um the the suit that the suit that the Tarasovs um, went for created that law and the forty or so states that honor it, so that's good. Unfortunately, um, Prasenjit is still just in back in India, living his normal life. And Tanya um, died at only nineteen years old. So damn, that's horrible. Very very unfair. That is. It seems like. Criminals sometimes get off a lot easier than they should. Yeah. That's terrible. Mm -hmm. Now, what if somebody murders his daughter? Right, yeah. What if, what if someone falls madly in love with her, misreads all the signs, and then shows up to his doorstep, kills her, walks in his house, and uses the phone to call the police on himself? Right, then he he's going to be out for revenge. Yeah. Oh, that's not, terrible. It is. Just stalking in general, like, it's definitely all, it definitely all goes back to, like, you know, mental health for for the um, stalker and not the not the stalky, I guess. Yeah, and that's, that's why America as a whole needs to start to embrace mental health as not such a taboo, like, you know, oh, there's something wrong with you. Don't tell anybody. No, like we need more therapists, more psychiatrists, more psychologists, and more people willing to go and get help. Because this is like yeah. these two extremely young ladies lost their lives for nothing. Yeah. And like, and, and, and sure, there are laws in place now, but people, people find ways to go through the law, like, you know, up 
police officer can't be everywhere. Well, well, not police officer, but like just someone can't report stalking like all the time. Like every case isn't going to be reported. And like in um in today's age, with how useful our phones are and how much access we have on the internet, you can find out a lot about people. Like people accidentally geotag their tweets, so you can figure out where they live just by tapping on the geotag. You know. Right, and that's scary. Or, you know, even if you do report a stalker, how can you prove it unless you have video of it or right, a picture? Yeah, yeah. It's like it's easy to say, "Hey, there's somebody, you know, in my bushes," but then by the time the police get there, they're long gone. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's really it's really a dangerous situation. I I just don't understand how, you know you can stalk somebody like how how can you dedicate that much of your life to somebody you barely know or don't even know sometimes yeah i don't know it's truly truly an obsession yeah but this is sad 20 i thought 20 was going to be all the way up and it was just not yeah damn you 20 yeah 20 well it's like 2020 it's just not our best right now absolutely this this right here 20 was par for the course for the year 2020 yeah absolutely it it has been a complete drag damn near the whole year (laughs) absolutely how how would you like to bring this up well yesterday i did do a little shopping because i'm back on my um mostly well I'm back on my vegetarian way of eating. You know, I've been eating chicken here and there, but I'm I'm stopping that again. And I found this little product called Pig Out Pigless Bacon Chips. And they're actually really good. <laughs> Pigless Bacon Chips. Yes, they're made out of uh, mushrooms. And I got um, Chipotle flavor. And I got the cheese flavor because once I like opened it and tried the Chipotle flavor, I was like, okay, I bet these would be really good cheesy. So I went back into the store and bought a bag of the cheese ones. But they're like, these taste like a really good barbecue potato chip. It don't like, I thought it was going to taste like pork rinds maybe. Mm-hmm. But no, no, totally different. It tastes like a really smoky, good barbecue chip. And man, it's good. Like I found some really good vegan sour cream some vegan cream cheese like dairy is my my thing like i love cheese man check you out you can't tell you nothing at the whole setup right now yeah like i don't like milk but i love cheese and sour cream so i bought me some vegan alternatives to try to you know acclimate myself to those and i am on it and these pig outs are really good that's what's up I um I've been I've been snacking on something lately too. I was over at a friend's house um, about a week a week or so ago, and they gave me some animal crackers. And I didn't remember how good animal crackers were. Like they are <laughs> so good. Are and, they the frosted kind or just the regular? Or just a regular. They're, they're by the brand um Stalfer, Stalfers. Oh, uh, the ones that used to come in the little box. Uh, I, I like I bought I bought the one that come inside the teddy bear like like it comes in the bear um like jar thing. Oh. I think I, I think I think they have some in the box though. 
Yeah, like they used to be like a little box and it looked like a circus cage and it had like a little string on it for you to carry it. That yeah, yeah. For your time, I don't know. <laughs> I think they're the same brand. Yeah, these things are so good though. And also that friend, her name is Sydney. Shout out to Sydney for making our great revised intro and outro. It sounds really good and it's based off of the one that I originally made. I was incredibly impressed by it. I didn't realize like how much more can be done to it. And um, she is in school for a commercial music major. She's a she's majoring in commercial music, which is just learning how to make music for profit, but not like, you know, not necessarily making music for commercials. Thanks, Sydney. We appreciate you. Yeah, absolutely. And shout out to your brother, Ro, who was our live studio audience a few weeks ago. Who suggested this topic? Yeah, he suggested the stalker topic. Hopefully he is not a stalker himself. Just kidding. Let's hope. <laughs> well, now that we're in better spirits, I think I'm going to make me a little veggie sandwich and have me some more of these pig out chips. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and, you know, kick back the rest of this afternoon. Maybe go on the hunt for some necessities like TP. They're slowly, slowly becoming easier to find. They they were on a brink of extinction for a long time. Very much so. But it's like, I think we're, I think we're getting better now. Good, good, good. Well, I'm V. And I'm Key. And this, we shouldn't talk about this. Thanks for listening. Bye.